Okay. We've talked a lot already today, and I've read a lot about the problems within the health system, in hospitals, GP clinics, vaccination. The, the, the problems are staggering when you look at it. In fact, the reports in the age yesterday that it's possible people who need not have died had died. There was a case quoted of a, a cancer sufferer who'd had surgery, would normally have been put on a ventilator to give themselves a chance of some sort of recovery, and there wasn't a ventilator, wasn't the staff available, so they weren't and consequently died. Okay, what is happening on the front line? On the line is Grace Carroll, very much on the front line, nurse unit manager of the infectious diseases ward at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. She has had COVID twice, twice. In fact, today is her last day in isolation from her second bout of COVID. Grace Carroll, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Don't tell me. You're going back to work tomorrow? I am. Yeah, that's the plan. So, yeah, I'm feeling Why? good. I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot better uh, this time around. Um, really was pretty much asymptomatic uh, when I got swabbed uh, because we do asymptomatic swabs at work, obviously, um, and developed symptoms maybe two days in after having the positive results. So, um, and but they were minimal as well. Uh, just did, a bit of a sore throat. Yeah. And it's obviously Omicron. Did you did you contract this at work? No, I'd actually, uh, I had two weeks off over Christmas um, and on Christmas Day, well, a few days after Christmas Day, my sister tested positive. Uh, So I put myself into a week-long isolation and tested negative after that. Uh, And then maybe five days later, tested positive. So I'm not really sure where I have picked it up from because they were all cleared by the time I tested positive. So, yeah, it's a mystery. Uh, so I went back. Yeah, I went back to work on Monday. Uh, did a full day's work and got home, and then got the text. <laughs> so, so another week off. And why are you going back tomorrow? I have to. I just feel um, there's so much staff shortages. I'm feeling okay. Um, I just don't want to let my team down, really. Um, you know, I, like the the first time I had COVID, I had to take five weeks off work. I was quite unwell, but I'm feeling fine. If if it wasn't COVID, if it was the before times, I'd be at work, you know. So, so that's mm. kind of yeah. Has has this bout left you? I know a lot of people who are suffering have said that they've and Josh Friedberg mentioned earlier, um, particularly exhausted, tired, um, flat. Are you finding that? Yeah, I I am a little bit, but. Look, it took me about six months to get over COVID the first time. Um, I was exhausted all the time. So I was, I was very concerned that I developed long COVID. Um, and, and from time to time, I do get flares of that tiredness. But also, when you're working on a COVID ward, I think you're going to be tired anyway. It's, it's quite tiring work. There's a lot of pressure, um, particularly with staff shortages and uh, wearing the PPE all the time uh, really drains you anyway. But I'm actually, I'm ready to to go for a walk and, you know, get out amongst it again, really, because I've spent two weeks in my house now <laughs> for the last three weeks. So I'm, I'm feeling well enough. I don't think I'm going to develop fatigue this time around. 
I remember Maybe I'm last, convincing myself. <laughs> I remember last year in the middle of one of the awful waves talking to a, a young nurse, uh, St. Visa, I think she was, and she said it wasn't unusual to come round the corner in a corridor and find another nurse huddled in a corner crying, just struggling to cope. Yeah. I get the impression, I get the impression it's even worse at the moment. Is it? What is happening in there? It, it's, you know, I suppose, you know, you set up COVID modelling and you have your ideal ratios. Uh, we, you know, we've been doing this for two years now, so we know what works. Um but unfortunately, if you've got a full ward and then you've got staff who have uh, tested positive and you can't fill those vacancies, you just have to work with what you've got. Um, and that's really tough because you can't give the patients what you like to give the patients. You can't give them that, you know, that care that you're proud of giving. Um, you just have to kind of prioritise and triage the patients who need you most. Um, and I think that's very challenging for staff because, you know, we pride ourselves on that. Um, so emotionally, it's it's very hard. But, I mean, you know, we've had tears on the ward for two years now, so it's not an unusual sight um, for someone to come into my office and have some tears. And, um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. What do you do with them? Give them a hug. I can't. <laughs> we can give each other hugs on the ward in PPE. Um, and we do that. Um, we have a music therapy program as well um, where musicians can sing songs for the patients uh, via iPad, but often they'll sing songs for us as well. We might have a bit of a boogie on the board <laughs> just to try and, you know, you need a bit of joy and you need something to keep you going. But there are you know, there are resources as well for staff. There's um, peer support and EAP counselling um, that you can get for free. But really, you know, what people need is a break. <laughs> At this point, that's really what they need. It's the nature of the job. You will see a lot of suffering, a lot of death. Um, is that the toughest part of it? Particularly when there's no visitors. I mean, to, to see people dying of COVID and they can't have family with them. must be horrible. Yeah. We at least... This year, we have been able to facilitate visits uh, for end-of-life care. The visitors, you know, we, we have to limit the time um, and we have to get those visitors all up in their PPE and make sure that they're maintaining those standards while they're in the room with their loved one. But certainly in the second wave, that was probably the most challenging thing. Uh, we were having a lot of patients coming from the nursing home facilities that had outbreaks. And by the time they were getting to us, they were pretty much end-of-life care. Um, so dying with an iPad um, in front of them and their families. And you could hear the families talking to their loved ones. And that was, you know, how could you, how could you be okay after witnessing that in a way? So I think there's probably a lot of mental health things that we're going to you know, come across in the years to come when we're really trying to dissect everything that we've been through and what we've witnessed. Um, and I think that's really going to affect people in the future as well. So yeah. the, the effect of this pandemic will linger, even if we do reach a peak and becomes endemic, you think the effect will linger in the health system? I think so. I mean, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It, it's been a very difficult thing to watch, um, particularly the the end-of-life care patients. But on the other hand, I think it's made us very strong as a team. 
um, you know, the fact I'm going back to work tomorrow, I, I wouldn't even give it a second thought, to be honest with you. Um, they're my team, and I know they would do the same if it was them as well. So we'll we'll stick together. We'll get through it like we have in the past. Um, yeah. Did we do enough to prepare for this? Because I know in the very early days we said, okay, we've got to flatten the curve. We're going to have lockdown until we get vaccinated. Uh, and to get the hospital system ready for the, the surge. Now, we've got the surge, and I keep reading that the hospital system is in under severe stress to the point of crumbling. I read that people are dying who shouldn't be dying. Did we do enough to prepare? Look, it's so hard to answer because I was so proud of how Victoria managed it when we were, you know, getting that curve under control and we were having our donut days and all of that. So, you know, I think it was last Saturday or the first day that they released the rapid antigens with the PCRs and it was 50,000. I have to say I burst into tears because I just thought, oh, I can't do this again. Another year of this. Um, but, you know, it's so hard. How eventually we're all going to have to get it, I think. Um, and really... If we can just control it a bit more, if people can still keep wearing their masks, make sure they're vaccinated, get their booster. Because honestly, I've had a week off work, but I'm fine. I'll be okay. I won't be in a hospital bed. It's like my sister said to me when she got COVID, you know, what happens? What happens me? You know, I'm 46. I'm boosted. And I said, I don't know. We don't see you in hospital. You're not a patient, your type, you know? Mm. So... I, I, I think, I hope that we're over the peak of it. The numbers look promising. But, I mean, back in the second wave, 700 cases was massive. So we're yeah. still in the tens of thousands. So we'll see how it goes. Is there anything we can do to help? Is there anything we can do at a government level? Or I mean, I, I can go and shout at governments or rattle cages. Is there anything that can be done? You say, gee, what we really need is... What we really need, um, obviously, everyone to get vaccinated and boosted. But what we need as well is very easy access to rapid antigen tests. If I wasn't at work and, and to have access to, um, you know, staff testing, I would have been at work definitely until Wednesday before I would have done a rapid antigen. Whether I was contagious, I don't know. Um, I think every household should have access to rapid antigen tests so that they can confidently know that they're not contagious that day. You know, um, I, I feel like Scott Morrison announcing that uh, rapid antigen tests will be sufficient, but without following through and making sure that everyone has access to them is a bit disappointing. Mm. Yeah. You, uh, do I sense an Irish accent there? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've been here nearly, nearly 20 years, but I can't get rid of the accent. <laughs> That's very, it's a very serious discussion to have with anybody with an Irish accent. We usually have a few jokes in the middle. But, but why, and that's a serious topic. Why, why are you a nurse? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, actually, my, my eldest sister uh, passed away from cancer when I was 25 um, in Ireland. But the nurses made it just that much easier for us as a family. They bent over backwards for us. And it took me a couple of years, but then I thought, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that for other people. 
And, you know, it does bring me joy to do that for other people and for other families. I feel very passionate about that. Um, so hopefully that passion keeps going through my career. But, yeah. Well, look, good luck with it. Um, just a little, go- a little game we're playing today. Uh, to finish the sentence, I'd like you to finish this sentence for me. Life at the moment is. Hmm. Life at the moment is challenging, but still beautiful. <laughs> well said, Grace. Thanks for talking to us. All <laughs> the best. Let us know if we can help along the way, please. Yes, Neil. Cheers. Bye. Take. Grace Carroll, Nurse Unit Manager, Infectious Diseases Ward, Royal Melbourne Hospital, right in the middle, right in the middle of the the pandemic and the surge. Life at the moment is one double three six nine three one double three six nine three. Isn't that fascinating too? She's here twenty years, and you can still pick up a hint of the Irish accent. Love to hear from anybody who's been in this country forever and still carries that accent. How do you do it? I think, I think you've got your accent established pretty much by about age ten or twelve. I think that's the way it works. So if you've got it, it doesn't matter how long you live here, you're stuck with your accent. One double three six nine three. Anything at all you would like, give me a call now. You can't join the Greyhound.